Part 13 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, June the 24th, 1854. Chapter 23. Mr. James Harthouse, going in for his adopted party, soon began to score. With the aid of a little more coaching for the political sages, a little more genteel listlessness for the general society, and a tolerable management of the assumed honesty and dishonesty, most effective and most patronised of the polite deadly sins, he speedily came to be considered of much promise. The not being troubled with earnestness was a grand point in his favour, enabling him to take the hard fact fellows with as good a grace as if he had been born one of the tribe, and to throw all other tribes overboard, as conscious impostors. "'Whom none of us believe, my dear Mrs. Bounderby, and who do not believe themselves, the only difference between us and the professors of virtue or benevolence or philanthropy, never mind the name, is that we know it is all meaningless and say so, while they know it equally, while they know it equally, and will never say so.' Why should she be shocked or warned by this reiteration? It was not so unlike her father's principles and her early training that it need startle her. Where was the great difference between the two schools when each chained her down to material realities and inspired her with no faith in anything else? What was there in her soul for James Harthouse to destroy which Thomas Gradgrind had nurtured there in its state of innocence? It was even the worse for her at this pass that in her mind implanted there before her eminently practical father began to form it a struggling disposition to believe in a wider and higher humanity than she had ever heard of constantly strove with doubts and resentments with doubts because the aspiration had been so laid waste in her youth with resentments because of the wrong that had been done to her if it were indeed a whisper of the truth Upon a nature so long accustomed to self-suppression, thus torn and divided, the Harthouse philosophy came as a relief and justification. Everything being hollow and worthless, she had missed nothing and sacrificed nothing. What did it matter, she had said to her father, when he proposed her husband? What did it matter, she said still? With a scornful self-reliance, she asked herself, what did anything matter? And went on. Towards what? step by step, onward and downward, towards some end, yet so gradually that she believed herself to remain motionless. As to Mr. Harthouse, whither he tended, he neither considered nor cared. He had no particular design or plan before him, no energetic wickedness ruffled his lassitude. He was as much amused and interested at present as it became so fine a gentleman to be perhaps even more than it would have been consistent with his reputation to confess. Soon after his arrival, he languidly wrote to his brother, the honourable and jocular member, that the Bounderbys were great fun, and further, that the female Bounderby, instead of being the gorgon he had expected, was young and remarkably pretty. After that, he wrote no more about them, and devoted his leisure chiefly to their house. He was very often in their house, in his flittings and visitings about the Coketown district, and was much encouraged by Mr. Bounderby. It was quite in Mr. Bounderby's gusty way to boast to all his world that he didn't care about your highly connected people, but that if his wife, Tom Gradgrind's daughter, did, she was welcome to their company. 
mr james harthouse began to think it would be a new sensation if the face which changed so beautifully for the whelp would change for him he was quick enough to observe he had a good memory and did not forget a word of the brother's revelations he interwove them with everything he saw of the sister and he began to understand her to be sure the better and profounder part of her character was not within his scope of perception for in natures as in seas depth answers unto depth but he soon began to read the rest with a student's eye mr bounderby had taken possession of a house and grounds about fifteen miles from the town and accessible within a mile or two by a railway striding on many arches over a wild country undermined by deserted coal-pits and spotted at night by fires and black shapes of engines this country gradually softening towards the neighbourhood of mr bounderby's retreat there mellowed into a rustic landscape golden with heath and snowy with hawthorn in the spring of the year and tremulous with leaves and their shadows all the summer time the bank had foreclosed a mortgage on the property thus pleasantly situated effected by one of the coketown magnates who in his determination to make a shorter cut than usual to an enormous fortune over-speculated himself afterwards by about two hundred thousand pounds these accidents did sometimes happen in the best regulated families of coketown though the bankrupts had no connection whatever with the improvident classes it afforded mr bounderby supreme satisfaction to install himself in this snug little estate and with demonstrative humility to grow cabbages in the flower garden he delighted to live barrack fashion among the elegant furniture and he bullied the very pictures with his origin why sir he would say to a visitor i am told that the nickets the late owner gave seven hundred pound for that sea beach now to be plain with you if i ever in the whole course of my life take seven looks at it at a hundred pounds a look it will be as much as i shall do no by george i don't forget that i am josiah bounderby of coketown for years upon years the only pictures in my possession are that i could have got into my possession by any means unless i stole them with the engravings of a man shaving himself in a boot on the blacking bottles that i was overjoyed to use in cleaning boots with and that i sold when they were empty for a farthing apiece and glad to get it then he would address mr harthouse in the same style harthouse you have a couple of horses down here bring half a dozen more if you like and we'll find room for em there's stabling in this place for a dozen horses and unless nickets is belied he kept the full number a round dozen of em sir when that man was a boy he went to westminster school went to westminster school as a king's scholar when i was principally living on garbage and sleeping in market baskets why if i wanted to keep a dozen horses which i don't for one's enough for me i couldn't bear to see em in their stalls here and think what my own lodging used to be i couldn't look at em sir and not order em out yet so things come round you see this place you know what sort of a place it is you're aware that there's not a completer place of its size in this kingdom or elsewhere i don't care where than here got into the middle of it like a maggot into a nut is josiah bounderby while nickets 
as a man came into my office and told me yesterday. Nickets, who used to act in Latin in the Westminster School plays, with the chief justices and nobility of this country applauding him till they were black in the face, is drivelling at this minute. Drivelling, sir, in a fifth floor up a narrow dark back street in Antwerp. It was among the leafy shadows of this retirement in the long sultry summer days that Mr. Harthouse began to prove the face which had set him wondering when he first saw it, and to try if it would change for him. Mrs. Bounderby, I esteem it a most fortunate accident that I find you alone here. I have for some time had a particular wish to speak to you. It was not by any wonderful accident that he found her, the time of day being that at which she was always alone and the place being her favourite resort. It was an opening in a dark wood, where some felled trees lay, and where she would sit watching the fallen leaves of last year, as she had watched the falling ashes at home. He sat down beside her with a glance at her face. Your brother, my young friend, Tom. Her colour brightened, and she turned to him with a look of interest. I never in my life, he thought, saw anything so remarkable and so captivating as the lighting of those features. His face betrayed his thoughts, perhaps without betraying him, for it might have been according to its instructions to do so. Pardon me, the expression of your sisterly interest is so beautiful. Tom should be so proud of it. I know this is inexcusable, but I am so compelled to admire. Being so impulsive, she said composedly, Mrs. Bounderby, no. You know I make no pretense with you. You know I am a sordid piece of human nature, ready to sell myself at any time for any reasonable sum, and altogether incapable of any Arcadian proceeding whatever. I am waiting, she returned, for your further reference to my brother. You are rigid with me, and I deserve it. I am as worthless a dog as you will find, except that I am not false, not false. But you surprised and started me for my subject which was your brother. I have an interest in him. Have you an interest in anything, Mr. Harthouse? she asked, half incredulously and half gratefully. If you had asked me when I first came here, I should have said no. I must say now, even at the hazard of appearing to make a pretense, and of justly awakening your incredulity, yes. She made a slight movement, as if she were trying to speak, but could not find voice. At length she said, Mr. Harthouse, I give you credit for being interested in my brother. Thank you. I claim to deserve it. You know how little I do claim, but I will go that length. You've done so much for him. You're so fond of him. Your whole life, Mrs. Bounderby, expresses such charming self-forgetfulness on his account. Pardon me again. I'm running wide of the subject. I am interested in him for his own sake. She had made the slightest action possible as if she would have risen in a hurry and gone away. He had turned the course of what he said at that instant, and she remained. Mrs. Bounderby, he resumed in a lighter manner, and yet with a show of effort in assuming it, which was even more expressive than the manner he dismissed. It is no irrevocable offence in a young fellow of your brother's years, if he is heedless, inconsiderate and expensive, a little dissipated in the common phrase. Is he? Yes. Allow me to be frank. Do you think he games at all? I think he makes bets, Mr. Harthouse, waiting, as if that were not her whole answer. She added, I know he does. Of course he loses. 
yes everybody loses who bets may i hint at the probability of your sometimes supplying him with money for these purposes she sat looking down but at this question raised her eyes searchingly and a little resentfully acquit me of impertinent curiosity my dear mrs bounderby i think tom may be gradually falling into trouble and i wish to stretch out a helping hand to him from the depths of my wicked experience shall i say again for his sake is that necessary she seemed to try to answer but nothing came of it candidly to confess everything that has occurred to me said james harthouse again gliding with the same appearance of effort into his more airy manner i will confide to you my doubt whether he has had many advantages whether forgive my plainness whether any great amount of confidence is likely to have been established between himself and his most worthy father i do not said louisa flushing with her own great remembrance in that wise think it likely or between himself and i may trust to your perfect understanding of my meaning i am sure and his highly esteemed brother-in-law she flushed deeper and deeper and was burning red when she replied in a fainter voice i do not think that likely either mrs bounderby after a short silence may there be a better confidence between yourself and me tom has borrowed a considerable sum of you you'll understand mr harthouse she returned after some indecision she had been more or less uncertain and troubled throughout the conversation yet she had in the main preserved her self-contained manner you will understand that if i tell you what you press to know it is not by way of complaint or regret i would never complain of anything and what i have done i do not in the least regret so spirited too thought james harthouse when i married i found that my brother was even at that time heavily in debt heavily for him i mean heavily enough to oblige me to sell some trinkets they were no sacrifice i sold them very willingly i attached no value to them they were quite worthless to me either she saw in his face that he knew or she only feared in her conscience that he knew that she spoke of some of her husband's gifts she stopped and reddened again if he had not known it before he would have known it then though he had been a much duller man than he was since then i have given my brother at various times what money i could spare in short what money i have had confiding in you at all on the faith of the interest you profess for him i will not do so by halves since you have been in the habit of visiting here he is wanted in one sum as much as a hundred pounds i have not been able to give it to him i have felt uneasy for the consequences of his being so involved but i have kept these secrets until now when i trust them to your honour i have held no confidence with any one because you anticipated my reason just now she abruptly broke off he was a ready man and he saw and seized an opportunity here of presenting her own image to her slightly disguised as her brother mrs bounderby though a graceless person of the world worldly i feel the utmost interest i assure you in what you tell me i cannot possibly be hard upon your brother i understand and share the wise consideration with which you regard his errors with all possible respect both for mr gradgrind and for mr bounderby i think i perceive that he has not been fortunate in his training bred at a disadvantage towards the society in which he has his part to play he rushes into those extremes for himself 
from opposite extremes that have long been forced with the very best intentions we have no doubt upon him mr bounderby's fine bluff english independence though a most charming characteristic does not as we have agreed invite confidence if i might venture to remark that it is the least in the world deficient in that delicacy to which a youth mistaken a character misconceived and abilities misdirected would turn for relief and guidance i should express what it presents to my own view as she sat looking straight before her across the changing lights upon the grass into the darkness of the wood beyond he saw in her face her application of his very distinctly uttered words all allowance he continued must be made i have one great fault to find with tom however which i cannot forgive and for which i take him heavily to account louisa turned her eyes to his face and asked him what fault was that perhaps he returned i have said enough perhaps it would have been better on the whole if no allusion to it had escaped me you alarm me mr harthouse pray let me know it to relieve you from needless apprehension and as this confidence regarding your brother which i prize i am sure above all possible things has been established between us i obey i cannot forgive him for not being more sensible in every word look and act of his life of the affection of his best friend of the devotion of his best friend of her unselfishness of her sacrifice the return he makes her within my observation is a very poor one what she has done for him demands his constant love and gratitude not his ill-humour and caprice careless fellow as i am i am not so indifferent mrs bounderby as to be regardless of this vice in your brother or inclined to consider it a venial offence the wood floated before her for her eyes were suffused with tears they rose from a deep well long concealed and her heart was filled with acute pain that found no relief in them in a word it is to correct your brother in this mrs bounderby that i most aspire my better knowledge of his circumstances and my direction and advice in extricating him rather valuable i hope as coming from a scapegrace on a much larger scale will give me some influence over him and all i gain i shall certainly use towards this end i have said enough and more than enough i seem to be protesting that i am a sort of good fellow when upon my honour i have not the least intention to make any protestation to that effect and openly announce that i am nothing of the sort yonder among the trees he added having lifted up his eyes and looked about for he had watched her closely until now is your brother himself no doubt just come down as he seems to be loitering in this direction it might be as well perhaps to walk towards him and throw ourselves in his way he has been very silent and doleful of late perhaps his brotherly conscience is touched if there are such things as consciences though upon my honour i hear of them much too often to believe in them he assisted her to rise and she took his arm and they advanced to meet the whelp he was idly beating the branches as he lounged along or he stopped viciously to rip the moss from the trees with his stick he was startled when they came upon him while he was engaged in this latter pastime and his colour changed uh halloa he stammered I, I i didn't know you were here whose name tom said mr harthouse putting his hand upon his shoulder and turning him so that they all three walked towards the house together have you been carving on the trees whose name returned tom oh 
You mean what girl's name? You have a suspicious appearance of inscribing some fair creatures on the bark, Tom. Not much of that, Mr. Harthouse, unless some fair creature with a slashing fortune at her own disposal would take a fancy to me. Or she might be as ugly as she was rich, without any fear of losing me. I'd carve her name as often as she liked. I'm afraid you are mercenary, Tom. Mercenary, repeated Tom. Who is not mercenary? Ask my sister. Have you so proved it to be a failing of mine, Tom? said Louisa, showing no other sense of his discontent and ill-nature. You know whether the cap fits you, Lou, returned her brother sulkily. If it does, you can wear it. Tom is misanthropical today, as all bored people are now and then, said Mr. Harthouse. Don't believe him, Mrs. Bounderby. He knows much better. I shall disclose some of his opinions of you, privately expressed to me, unless he relents a little. At all events, Mr. Harthouse, said Tom, softening in his admiration of his patron, but shaking his head sullenly too. You can't tell her that I ever praised her for being mercenary. I may have praised her for being the contrary, and I should do it again if I had as good reason. However, never mind this now. It's not very interesting to you, and I'm sick of the subject. They walked on to the house, where Louisa quitted her visitor's arm and went in. He stood looking after her as she ascended the steps, and passed into the shadow of the door. Then he put his hand upon her brother's shoulder again, and invited him, with a confidential nod, to a walk in the garden. "'Tom, my fine fellow, I want to have a word with you.' They had stopped among a disorder of roses. It was part of Mr. Bounderby's humility to keep Nickett's roses on a reduced scale, and Tom sat down on a terrace parapet, plucking buds and picking them to pieces, while his powerful familiar stood over him with a foot upon the parapet and his figure easily resting on the arm supported by that knee. They were just visible from her window. Perhaps she saw them. Tom, what's the matter? Oh, Mr. Harthouse, said Tom with a groan. I'm hard up and bothered out of my life. My good fellow, so am I. You, returned Tom, you are the picture of independence. Mr. Harthouse, I'm in a horrible mess. You have no idea what a state I've got myself into, what a state my sister might have got me out of, if she would only have done it. He took to biting the rosebuds now, and tearing them away from his teeth with a hand that trembled like an infirm old man's. After one exceedingly observant look at him, his companion relapsed into his lightest air. Tom, you are inconsiderate. You expect too much of your sister. You have had money of her, you dog. You know you have. Well, Mr. Harthouse, I know I have. How else was I to get it? Here's old Bounderby always boasting that at my age he lived upon twopence a month or something of that sort. Here's my father drawing what he calls a line and tying me down to it from a baby, neck and heels. Here's my mother, who never has anything of her own except her complaints. What is a fellow to do for money? Where am I to look for it, if not to my sister? He was almost crying, and scattered the buds about by dozens. Mr. Harthouse took him persuasively by the coat. But, my dear Tom, if your sister has not got it... Not got it, Mr. Harthouse? I don't say she has got it. I may have wanted more than she was likely to have got. But then she ought to get it. She could get it. It's of no use pretending to make a secret of matters now, after what I've told you already. 
you know she didn't marry old bounderby for her own sake or for his sake but for my sake then why doesn't she get what i want out of him for my sake she's not obliged to say what she's going to do with it she is sharp enough she could manage to coax it out of him if she chose then why doesn't she choose when i tell her of what consequence it is but no there she sits in his company like a stone instead of making herself agreeable and getting it easily i don't know what you may call this but i call it unnatural conduct there was a piece of ornamental water immediately below the parapet and on the other side into which mr james harthouse had a very strong inclination to pitch mr thomas gradgrind junior as the injured men of coketown threatened to pitch their property into the atlantic but he preserved his easy attitude and nothing more solid went over the stone balustrades than the accumulated rosebuds now floating about a little surface island my dear tom said harthouse let me try to be your banker for god's sake replied tom suddenly don't talk about bankers and very white he looked in contrast with the roses very white mr harthouse as a thoroughly well-bred man accustomed to the best society was not to be surprised he could as soon have been affected but he raised his eyelids a little more as if they were lifted by a feeble touch of wonder albeit it was as much against the precepts of his school to wonder as it was against the doctrines of the gradgrind college what is the present need tom three figures out with them say what they are mr harthouse returned tom now actually crying and his tears were better made than his injuries however pitiful figure he made it's too late the money is of no use to me at present i should have had it before to be of use to me but i'm very much obliged to you you're a true friend true friend whelp whelp thought mr harthouse lazily what an ass you are and i take your offer as a great kindness said tom grasping his hand as a great kindness mr harthouse well returned the other it may be of more use by and by and my good fellow if you will open your bedevilments to me when they come thick upon you i may show you better ways out of them than you can find for yourself thank you said tom shaking his head dismally and chewing rosebuds i wish i'd known you sooner mr harthouse now you see tom said mr harthouse in conclusion himself tossing over a rose or two as a contribution to the island which was always drifting to the wall as if it wanted to become a part of the mainland every man is selfish in everything he does and i am exactly like the rest of my fellow-creatures i am desperately intent the languor of his desperation being quite tropical on your softening towards your sister which you ought to do and on your being a more loving and agreeable sort of brother which you ought to be i will be mr harthouse no time like the present tom begin at once certainly i will and my sister lou shall say so having made which bargain tom said harthouse clapping him on the shoulder again with an air which left him at liberty to infer as he did poor fool that this condition was imposed upon him in mere careless good-nature to lessen his sense of obligation we will tear ourselves asunder until dinner-time when tom appeared before dinner though his mind seemed heavy enough his body was on the alert and he appeared before mr bounderby came in i didn't mean to be cross lou he said giving her his hand and kissing her i know you are fond of me 
and you know I'm fond of you. After this, there was a smile upon Louisa's face that day, for someone else. Alas, for someone else. So much the less is the whelp the only creature that she cares for, thought James Harthouse, reversing the reflection of his first day's knowledge of her pretty face. So much the less. End of part 13「Fourteen of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a Weekly Journal, Saturday, July the first, eighteen fifty four. Chapter twenty four. The next morning was too bright a morning for sleep, and James Harthouse rose early and sat in the pleasant bay window of his dressing room smoking the rare tobacco that had so wholesome an influence on his young friend reposing in the sunlight with the fragrance of his eastern pipe about him and the dreamy smoke vanishing into the air so rich and soft with summer odours as an idle winner might count his gains he was not at all bored for the time and could give his mind to it he had established a confidence with her from which her husband was excluded he had established a confidence with her that absolutely turned upon her indifference towards her husband, and the absence now and at all times of any congeniality between them. He had artfully but plainly assured her that he knew her heart in its last most delicate recesses. He had come so near to her through its tenderest sentiment. He had associated himself with that feeling, and the barrier behind which she lived had melted away, all very odd and very satisfactory and yet he had not, even now, any earnest wickedness of purpose in him. Publicly and privately, it were much better for the age in which he lived, that he and the legion of whom he were one were designedly bad than indifferent and purposeless. It is the drifting iceberg setting with any current anywhere that wreck the ships. When the devil goeth about like a roaring lion, he goeth about in a shape by which few but savages and hunters are attracted. But when he is trimmed, varnished, and polished according to the mode, when he is a weary of vice and a weary of virtue, used up as to brimstone, and used up as to bliss, then, whether he take to the serving out of red tape, or to the kindling of red fire, he is the very devil. So James Harthouse reclined in the window, indolently smoking, and reckoning up the steps he had taken on the road by which he happened to be travelling. The end to which it led was before him, pretty plainly, but he troubled himself with no calculations about it. What will be, will be. As he had rather a long ride to take that day, for there was a public occasion to do, at some distance, which afforded a tolerable opportunity of going in for the Gradgrind men, he dressed early and went down to breakfast. He was anxious to see if she had relapsed since the previous evening. No, he resumed where he had left off. There was a look of interest for him again. He got through the day as much, or as little, to his own satisfaction as was to be expected under the fatiguing circumstances, and came riding back at six o'clock. There was a sweep of some half-mile between the lodge and the house, and he was riding along at a foot's pace over the smooth gravel, once Nickett's, when Mr. Bounderby burst out of the shrubbery with such violence as to make his horse shy across the road. "'Hart house!' cried Mr. Bounderby. "'Have you heard?' 
heard what said harthouse soothing his horse and inwardly favouring mr bounderby with no good wishes then you haven't heard i've heard you and so has this brute i've heard nothing else mr bounderby red and hot planted himself in the centre of the path before the horse's head to explode his bombshell with more effect the bank's robbed you don't mean it robbed last night sir robbed in an extraordinary manner robbed with a false key of much mr bounderby in his desire to make the most of it really seemed mortified by being obliged to reply why no not a very much but it might have been of how much oh as a sum if you stick to a sum of not more than a hundred and fifty pound said bounderby with impatience but it's not the sum it's the fact it's the fact of the bank being robbed that's the important circumstance i'm surprised you don't see it my dear bounderby said james dismounting and giving his bridle to his servant i do see it and am as overcome as you can possibly desire me to be by the spectacle afforded to my mental view nevertheless i may be allowed i hope to congratulate you which i do with all my soul i assure you on your not having sustained a greater loss thank ye replied bounderby in a short ungracious manner but i tell you what it might have been twenty thousand pound i suppose it might suppose it might by the lord you may suppose so by george said mr bounderby with sundry menacing nods and shakes of his head it might have been twice twenty there's no knowing what it would have been or wouldn't have been as it was but for the fellows being disturbed louisa had come up now and mrs sparsit and bitzer here's tom gradgrind's daughter knows very well what it might have been if you don't blustered bounderby drops her as if she was shot when i told her never knew her to do such a thing before does her credit under the circumstances in my opinion she still looked faint and pale james harthouse begged her to take his arm and as they moved on very slowly asked how the robbery had been committed why i'm going to tell you said mr bounderby irritably giving his arm to mrs sparsit if you hadn't been so mighty particular about the sum i should have begun to tell you before you know this lady for she is a lady mrs sparsit i have already had the honour very well and this young man bitzer you saw him too on the same occasion mr harthouse inclined his head in assent and bitzer knuckled his forehead very well they live at the bank you know they live at the bank perhaps very well yesterday afternoon at the close of business hours everything was put away as usual in the iron room that this young fellow sleeps outside of there was never mind how much in the little safe in young tom's closet the safe used for petty purposes there was a hundred and fifty odd pound hundred and fifty four seven one said bitzer come retorted bounderby stopping to wheel round upon him let's have none of your interruptions it's enough to be robbed while you're snoring because you're too comfortable without being put right with your four seven ones i didn't snore myself when i was your age let me tell you i hadn't victuals enough to snore and i didn't four seven one not if i knew it bitzer knuckled his forehead again in a sneaking manner 
and seemed at once particularly impressed and depressed by the instance last given of mr bounderby's moral abstinence a hundred and fifty odd pound resumed mr bounderby that sum of money young tom locked in his safe not a very strong safe but that's no matter now everything was left all right some time in the night when this young fellow snored mrs sparsit ma'am you say you've heard him snore sir returned mrs sparsit i cannot say that i have heard him precisely snore and therefore must not make that statement but on winter evenings when he has fallen asleep at his table i have heard him what i should prefer to describe as partially choke i've heard him on such occasions produce sounds of a nature similar to what may be sometimes heard in dutch clocks not said mrs sparsit with a lofty sense of giving strict evidence that i would convey any imputation on his moral character far from it i have always considered bitzer a young man of the most upright principle and to that i beg to bear my testimony well said the exasperated bounderby while he was snoring or choking or dutch clocking or something or other being asleep some fellows somehow whether previously concealed in the house or not remains to be seen got to young tom's safe forced it and abstracted the contents being then disturbed they made off letting themselves out at the main door and double locking it again it was double locked and the key under mrs sparsit's pillow with a false key which was picked up in the street near the bank about twelve o'clock to-day no alarm takes place till this chap bitzer turns out this morning and begins to open and prepare the offices for business then looking at tom's safe he sees the door ajar and finds the lock forced and the money gone where is tom by the by asked harthouse glancing round he has been helping the police said bounderby and stays behind at the bank i wish these fellows had tried to rob me when i was at his time of life they would have been out of pocket if they had invested eighteen pence in the job i can tell them that is anybody suspected suspected i should think there was somebody suspected eh god said bounderby relinquishing mrs sparsit's arm to wipe his heated head josiah bounderby of corktown is not to be plundered and nobody suspected no thank you might mr harthouse inquire who was suspected well said bounderby stopping and facing about to confront them all i'll tell you it's not to be mentioned everywhere it's not to be mentioned anywhere in order that the scoundrels concerned there's a gang of em may be thrown off their guard so take this in confidence now wait a bit mr bounderby wiped his head again what should you say to here he violently exploded to a hand being in it i hope said harthouse lazily not our friend blackpot say pool instead of pot sir returned bounderby and that's the man louisa faintly uttered some word of incredulity and surprise oh yes i know said bounderby immediately catching at the sound i know i'm used to that i know all about it they're the finest people in the world these fellows are they've got the gift of the gab they have they only want to have their rights explained to em they do but i tell you what 
show me a dissatisfied hand, and I'll show you a man that's fit for anything bad. I don't care what it is. Another of the popular fictions of Coketown, which some pains had been taken to disseminate, and which some people really believed. But I'm acquainted with these chaps, said Bounderby. I can read them off like books. Mrs. Sparsit, ma'am, I appeal to you. What warning did I give that fellow the first time he set foot in the house, when the express object of his visit was to know how he could knock religion over and floor the established church? Mrs. Sparsit, in point of high connections, you are on a level with the aristocracy. Did I say, or did I not say to that fellow, You can't hide the truth from me. You are not the kind of fellow I like. You'll come to no good. Assuredly, sir, returned Mrs. Sparsit. You did, in a highly impressive manner, give him such an admonition. When he shocked you, ma'am, said Bounderby, when he shocked your feelings. Yes, sir, returned Mrs. Sparsit, with a meek shake of her head. He certainly did so, though I do not mean to say, but that my feelings may be weaker on such points. More foolish, if the term is preferred, than they might have been, if I had always occupied my present position. Mr. Bounderby stared with a bursting pride at Mr. Harthouse, as much as to say, I am the proprietor of this female, and she's worth your attention, I think, then resumed his discourse. You can recall for yourself, Harthouse, what I said to him when you saw him. I didn't mince the matter with him. I'm never mealy with him. I know him. Very well, sir. Three days after that he bolted, went off, nobody knows where, as my mother did in my infancy, only with this difference, that he is a worse subject than my mother, if possible. What did he do before he went? What do you say? Mr. Bounderby, with his hat in his hand, gave a beat upon the crown at every little division of his sentences, as if it were a tambourine. Days being seen, night after night, watching the bank. To his lurking about there, after dark, to its striking Mrs. Sparsit, that he could be lurking for no good, to her calling Bitzer's attention to him, and they're both taking notice of him, and to its appearing on inquiry today, that he was also noticed by the neighbours. Having come to the climax, Mr. Bounderby, like an oriental dancer, put his tambourine on his head. "'Suspicious?' said James Harthouse. "'Certainly.' "'I think so, sir,' said Bounderby, with a defiant nod. "'I think so. "'But there are more of a minute. "'There's an old woman. "'One never hears of these things till the mischief's done. "'All sorts of defects are found out in the stable door "'after the horse is stolen. "'There's an old woman turns up now. "'An old woman who seems to have been flying into town "'on a broomstick every now and then.' She watches the place a whole day before this fellow begins, and on the night when you saw him, she steals away with him and holds a council with him, as opposed to make her report on going off duty and be damned to her. There was such a person in the room that night, and she shrunk from observation, thought Louisa. This is not all of them, even as we already know them, said Bounderby, with many nods of hidden meaning. But... I've said enough for the present. You'll have the goodness to keep it quiet and mention it to no one. It might take time, but we shall have them.' 
It's policy to give them line enough, and there's no objection to that. Of course they will be punished with the utmost rigour of the law, as notice-boards observe, replied James Harthouse, and serve them right. Fellows who go in for banks must take the consequences. If there were no consequences, we should all go in for banks. He had gently taken Louisa's parasol from her hand, and had put it up for her, and she walked under its shade, though the sun did not shine there. The the present, Lou Bounderby, said her husband. Here's Mrs. Sparsit to look after. Mrs. Sparsit's nerves have been acted upon by this business, and she'll stay here a day or two, so make her comfortable. Thank you very much, sir, that discreet lady observed. But pray, do not let my comfort be a consideration. Anything will do for me. It soon appeared that if Mrs. Sparsit had a failing in her association with that domestic establishment, it was that she was so excessively regardless of herself and regardful of others as to be a nuisance. On being shown her chamber, she was so dreadfully sensible of its comforts as to suggest the inference that she would have preferred to pass the night on the mangle in the laundry. True, the Powlers and the Skadgeses were accustomed to splendour, but it is my duty to remember, Mrs. Sparsit was fond of observing with a lofty grace, particularly when any of the domestics were present, that what I was, I am no longer. Indeed, said she, if I could altogether cancel the remembrance that Mr. Sparsit was a Powler, or that I myself am related to the Scadgers family, or if I could even revoke the fact and make myself a person of common descent and ordinary connections, I would gladly do so. I should think it, under existing circumstances, right to do so. The same hermitical state of mind led to her renunciation of made dishes and wines at dinner, until fairly commanded by Mr. Bounderby to take them. When she said, Indeed, you are very good, sir, and departed from a resolution of which she had made rather formal and public announcement to wait for the simple mutton, she was likewise deeply apologetic for wanting the salt and feeling amiably bound to bear out Mr. Bounderby to the fullest extent in the testimony he had borne to her nerves, occasionally sat back in her chair, and silently wept, at which periods a tear of large dimensions, like a crystal earring, might be observed, or rather must be, for it insisted on public notice, sliding down her Roman nose. But Mrs. Sparsit's greatest point, first and last, was her determination to pity Mr. Bounderby. There were occasions when in looking at him she was involuntarily moved to shake her head, as who should say, Alas, poor Yorick! After allowing herself to be betrayed into these evidences of emotion, she would force a lambent brightness, and would be fitfully cheerful, and would say, You have still good spirits, sir, I am thankful to find, and would appear to hail it as a blessed dispensation, that Mr. Bounderby bore up as he did. One idiosyncrasy for which she often apologised, she found it excessively difficult to conquer. She had a curious propensity to call Mrs. Bounderby Miss Gradgrind, and yielded to it some three or four score times in the course of the evening. Her repetition of this mistake covered Mrs. Sparsit with modest confusion, but indeed, she said, it seemed so natural to say Miss Gradgrind, whereas to persuade herself that the young lady whom she had had the happiness of knowing from a child 
could be really and truly Mrs. Bounderby, she found almost impossible. It was a further singularity of this remarkable case, that the more she thought about it, the more impossible it appeared. The differences, she observed, being such. In the drawing-room after dinner, Mr. Bounderby tried the case of the robbery, examined the witnesses, made notes of the evidence, found the suspected persons guilty, and sentenced them to the extreme punishment of the law. That done, Bitzer was dismissed to town, with instructions to recommend Tom to come home by the mail-train. When candles were brought, Mrs. Sparsit murmured, "'Don't be low, sir. Pray let me see you cheerful, sir, as I used to do.' Mr. Bounderby, upon whom these consolations had begun to produce the effect of making him, in a bull-headed, blundering way, sentimental, sighed like some large sea-animal. "'I cannot bear to see you so, sir,' said Mrs. Sparsit. "'Try a hand at backgammon, sir, as you used to do when I had the honour of living under your roof.' "'I haven't played backgammon, ma'am,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'since that time.' "'No, sir,' said Mrs. Sparsit soothingly. I am aware that you have not. I remember that Miss Gradgrind takes no interest in the game. But I shall be happy, sir, if you will condescend. They played near a window, opening on the garden. It was a fine night, not moonlight, but sultry and fragrant. Louisa and Mr. Harthouse strolled out into the garden where their voices could be heard in the stillness, though not what they said. Mrs. Sparsit, from her place at the backgammon board, was constantly straining her eyes to pierce the shadows without. "'What's the matter, ma'am?' said Mr. Bounderby. "'You don't see a fire, do you?' "'Oh, dear, no, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsit. "'I was thinking of the Jew.' "'What have you got to do with the Jew, ma'am?' said Mr. Bounderby. "'It's not myself, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsit. "'I'm fearful of Miss Gradgrind's taking cold.' "'She never takes cold.' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Really, sir?' said Mrs. Sparsit, and was affected with a cough in her throat. When the time drew near for retiring, Mr. Bounderby took a glass of water. "'Oh, sir,' said Mrs. Sparsit, "'not your sherry warm with lemon peel and nutmeg?' "'Why, I've got out of the habit of taking it now, ma'am,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'The more's the pity, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsit. "'You're losing all your good old habits. "'Cheer up, sir. "'If Miss Gradgrind will permit me, "'I will offer to make it for you, as I've often done.' "'Miss Gradgrind, readily permitting Mrs. Sparsit "'to do anything she pleased, "'that considerate lady made the beverage "'and handed it to Mr. Bounderby. "'It will do you good, sir. "'It will warm your heart. "'It's the sort of thing you want, nought to take, sir.' "'And when Mr. Bounderby said, "'Your health, ma'am,' she answered with great feeling. "'Thank you, sir. The same to you, and happiness also.' Finally she wished him good-night with great pathos, and Mr. Bounderby went to bed with a maudlin persuasion that he had been crossed in something tender, though he could not for his life have mentioned what it was. Long after Louisa had undressed and laid down, she watched and waited for her brother's coming home. That could hardly be, she knew, until an hour past midnight. But in the country silence, which did anything but calm the trouble of her thoughts, time lagged wearily. At last, when the darkness and stillness had seemed for hours to thicken one another, she heard the bell at the gate. 
she felt as though she would have been glad that it rang on until daylight but it ceased and the circles of its last sound spread out fainter and wider in the air and all was dead again she waited yet some quarter of an hour as she judged then she arose put on a loose robe and went out of her room in the dark and up the staircase to her brother's room his door being shut she softly opened it and spoke to him approaching his bed with a noiseless step she kneeled down beside it passed her arm over his neck and drew his face to hers she knew that he only feigned to be asleep but she said nothing to him he started by and by as if he were just then awakened and asked who that was and what was the matter tom have you anything to tell me if you ever loved me in your life and have anything concealed from every one besides tell it to me i don't know what you mean lou you have been dreaming my dear brother she laid her head down on his pillow and her hair flowed over him as if she would hide him from every one but herself is there nothing that you have to tell me is there nothing you can tell me if you will you can tell me nothing that will change me oh tom tell me the truth i don't know what you mean lou as you lie here alone my dear in the melancholy night so you must lie somewhere one night where even i if i'm living then shall have left you as i am here beside you barefoot unclothed undistinguishable in darkness so must i lie through all the night of my decay until i'm dust in the name of that time tom tell me the truth now what is it you want to know you may be certain in the energy of her love she took him to her bosom as if he were a child that i will not reproach you you may be certain that i will be compassionate and true to you you may be certain that i will save you at whatever cost oh tom have you nothing to tell me whisper very softly say only yes and i shall understand you she turned her ear to his lips but he remained doggedly silent not a word tom how can i say yes or how can i say no when i don't know what you mean lou you're a brave kind girl worthy i begin to think of a better brother than i am but i have nothing more to say go to bed go to bed you're tired she whispered presently more in her usual way yes i'm quite tired out you've been so hurried and disturbed to-day have any fresh discoveries been made only those you've heard of from him tom have you said to any one that we made a visit to those people and that we saw those three together no didn't you yourself particularly ask me to keep it quiet when you asked me to go there with you yes but i did not know then what was going to happen nor i neither how could i he was very quick upon her with this retort ought i to say after what has happened said his sister standing by the bed she had gradually withdrawn herself and risen that i made that visit should i say so must i say so good heavens lou returned her brother you're not in the habit of asking my advice say what you like if you keep it to yourself i shall keep it to myself if you disclose it there's an end of it it was too dark for either to see the other's face but each seemed very attentive and to consider before speaking tom do you believe the man i gave the money to is really implicated in this crime i don't know i don't see why he shouldn't be he seemed to me an honest man 
another person may seem to you dishonest and yet not be so there was a pause for he had hesitated and stopped in short returned tom as if he had made up his mind if you come to that perhaps i was so far from being altogether in his favour that i took him outside the door to tell him quietly that i thought he might consider himself very well off to get such a windfall as he had got from my sister and that i hoped he would make a good use of it you remember whether i took him out or not i say nothing against the man he may be a very good fellow for anything i know i hope he is was he offended by what you said no he took it pretty well he was civil enough where are you lou he sat up in bed and kissed her good night my dear good night you have nothing more to tell me no what should i have you wouldn't have me tell you a lie i wouldn't have you do that to-night tom of all the nights in your life many and much happier as i hope they will be thank you my dear lou i'm so tired that i'm sure i wonder i don't say anything to get to sleep go to bed go to bed kissing her again he turned round drew the coverlet over his head and lay as still as if that time had come by which she had adjured him she stood for some time at the bedside before she slowly moved away she stopped at the door looked back when she had opened it and asked him if he had called her but he lay still and she softly closed the door and returned to her room then the wretched boy looked cautiously up and found her gone crept out of bed fastened his door and threw himself upon his pillow again tearing his hair morosely crying grudgingly loving her hatefully but impenitently spurning himself and no less hatefully and unprofitably spurning all the good in the world end of part 14part 15 of hard times by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain from household words a weekly journal saturday july the 8th 1854 chapter 25 mrs sparsett lying by to recover the tone of her nerves in mr bounderby's retreat kept such a sharp lookout night and day under her coriolanian eyebrows that her eyes like a couple of lighthouses on an iron-bound coast might have warned all prudent mariners from that bold rock her roman nose and the dark and craggy region in its neighbourhood but for the placidity of her manner although it was hard to believe that her retiring for the night could be anything but a form so severely wide awake with those classical eyes of hers and so impossible did it seem that her rigid nose could yield to any relaxing influence yet her manner of sitting smoothing her uncomfortable not to say gritty mittens they were constructed of a cool fabric like a meat safe or of ambling to unknown places of destination with her foot in her cotton stirrup was so perfectly serene that most observers would have been constrained to suppose her a dove embodied by some freak of nature in the earthly tabernacle of a bird of the hook-beaked order she was a most wonderful woman for prowling about the house how she got from story to story was a mystery beyond solution a lady so decorous in herself and so highly connected was not to be suspected of dropping over the banisters or sliding down them yet her extraordinary facility of locomotion suggested the wild idea another noticeable circumstance in mrs sparsett 
was that she was never hurried she would shoot with consummate velocity from the roof to the hall yet would be in full possession of her breath and dignity on the moment of her arrival there neither was she ever seen by human vision to go at a great pace she took very kindly to mr harthouse and had some pleasant conversation with him soon after her arrival she made him stately curtsy in the garden one morning before breakfast it appears but yesterday sir said mrs sparsit that i had the honour of receiving you at the bank when you were so good as to wish to be made acquainted with mr bounderby's address an occasion i am sure not to be forgotten by myself in the course of ages said mr harthouse inclining his head to mrs sparsit with the most indolent of all possible airs we live in a singular world sir said mrs sparsit i have had the honour by a coincidence of which i am proud to have made a remark similar in effect though not so epigrammatically expressed a singular world i would say sir pursued mrs sparsit after acknowledging the compliment with a drooping of her dark eyebrows not altogether so mild in its expression as her voice was in its dulcet tones as regards the intimacies we form at one time with individuals we were quite ignorant of at another i recall sir on that occasion you went so far as to say you were actually apprehensive of miss gradgrind your memory does me more honour than my insignificance deserves i availed myself of your obliging hints to correct my timidity and it is unnecessary to add that they were perfectly accurate mrs sparsit's talent for in fact for anything requiring accuracy with a combination of strength of mind and family is too habitually developed to admit of any question he was almost falling asleep over this compliment it took him so long to get through and his mind wandered so much in the course of its execution you found mrs gradgrind i really cannot call her mrs branderby it's very absurd of me as youthful as i described her asked mrs sparsit sweetly you drew her portrait perfectly said mr harthouse presented her dead image very engaging sir said mrs sparsit causing her mittens slowly to revolve over one another highly so it used to be considered said mrs sparsit that miss gradgrind was wanting in animation but i confess she appears to me considerably and strikingly improved in that respect ay and indeed here is mr bounderby cried mrs sparsit nodding her head a great many times as if she had been talking and thinking of no one else how do you find yourself this morning sir pray let us see you cheerful sir now these persistent assuagements of his misery and lightenings of his load had by this time begun to have the effect of making mr bounderby softer than usual towards mrs sparsit and harder than usual to most other people from his wife downward so when mrs sparsit said with forced lightness of heart you want your breakfast sir but i dare say miss gradgrind will soon be here to preside at the table mr bounderby replied if i waited to be taken care of by my wife ma'am i believe you know pretty well i should wait till doomsday so i'll trouble you to take charge of the teapot mrs sparsit complied and assumed her old position at table this again made the excellent woman vastly sentimental she was so humble withal that when louisa appeared she rose 
protesting she could never think of sitting in that place under existing circumstances often as she had had the honour of making mr bounderby's breakfast before mrs gradgrind she begged pardon she meant to say miss bounderby she hoped to be excused but she really could not get it right yet though she trusted to become familiar with it by and by had assumed her present position it was only she observed because miss gradgrind happened to be a little late and mr bounderby's time was so very precious and she knew it of old to be so essential that he should breakfast to the moment that she had taken the liberty of complying with his request long as his will had been a law to her there stop where you are ma'am said mr bounderby stop where you are mrs bounderby will be very glad to be relieved of the trouble i believe don't say that sir returned mrs sparsit almost with severity because that is very unkind to mrs bounderby and to be unkind is not to be you sir you may set your mind at rest ma'am you can take it very quietly can't you lou said mr bounderby in a blustering way to his wife of course it's of no moment why should it be of any importance to me why should it be of any importance to anyone mrs sparsit ma'am said mr bounderby swelling with a sense of slight you attach too much importance to these things ma'am by george you'll be corrected in some of your notions here you're old-fashioned ma'am you're behind tom gradgrind's children's time what is the matter with you asked louisa coldly surprised what has given you offence offence repeated bounderby do you suppose if there was any offence given me i shouldn't name it and request to have it corrected i am a straightforward man i believe i don't go beating about for side-winds i suppose no one ever had occasion to think you too diffident or too delicate louisa answered him composedly i have never made that objection to you either as a child or as a woman i don't understand what you would have have returned mr bounderby nothing otherwise don't you lou bounderby know thoroughly well that i josiah bounderby of corktown would have it she looked at him as he struck the table and made the teacups ring with a proud colour in her face that was a new change mr harthouse thought you are incomprehensible this morning said louisa pray take no further trouble to explain yourself i am not curious to know your meaning what does it matter nothing more was said on this theme and mr harthouse was soon idly gay on indifferent subjects but from this day the sparsit action upon mr bounderby threw louisa and james harthouse more together and strengthened the dangerous alienation from her husband and confidence against him with another into which she had fallen by degrees so fine that she could not retrace them if she tried but whether she ever tried or no lay hidden in her own closed heart mrs sparsit was so much affected on this particular occasion that assisting mr bounderby to his hat after breakfast and being then alone with him in the hall she imprinted a chaste kiss upon his hand murmured my benefactor and retired overwhelmed with grief yet it is an indubitable fact within the cognizance of this history that five minutes after he had left the house in the self-same hat the same descendant of the scadgerses and connection by matrimony of the powlers shook her right-hand mitten at his portrait made a contemptuous grimace at that work of art and said serve you right you noodle and i'm glad of it 
Mr. Bounderby had not been long gone when Bitzer appeared. Bitzer had come down by train, shrieking and rattling over the long line of arches that bestrode the wild country of past and present coal pits with an express from Stone Lodge. It was a hasty note to inform Louisa that Mrs. Gradgrind lay very ill. She had never been well within her daughter's knowledge, but she had declined within the last few days and had continued sinking all through the night and was now as nearly dead as her limited capacity of being in any state that implied the ghost of an intention to get out of it allowed accompanied by the lightest of porters fit colourless servitor at death's door when mrs gradgrind knocked louisa rumbled to coketown over the coal pits past and present and was whirled into its smoky jaws she dismissed the messenger to his own devices and rode away to her old home she had seldom been there since her marriage. Her father was usually sifting and sifting at his parliamentary cinder-heap in London, without being observed to turn up many precious articles among the rubbish, and was still hard at it in the national dust-yard. Her mother had taken it rather as a disturbance than otherwise to be visited, as she reclined upon her sofa. Young people, Louisa felt herself all unfit for. Sissy, she had never softened to again since the night when the stroller's child had raised her eyes to look at Mr. Bounderby's intended wife. She had no inducements to go back, and had rarely gone. Neither, as she approached her old home now, did any of the best influences of old home descend upon her. The dreams of childhood, its airy fables, its graceful, beautiful, humane, impossible adornments of the world beyond, so good to be believed in once, so good to be remembered when outgrown for then the least among them rises to the statue of a great charity in the heart suffering little children to come into the midst of it and to keep with their pure hands a garden in the stony ways of this world wherein it were better for all the children of adam that they should often sun themselves simple and trustful and not worldly wise what had she to do with these remembrances of how she had journeyed to the little that she knew by the enchanted roads of what she and millions of innocent creatures had hoped and imagined, of how, first coming upon reason through the tender light of fancy, she had seen it a beneficent God, deferring to gods as great as itself, not a grim idol, cruel and cold, with its victims bound hand to foot, and its big dumb shape set up with a sightless stare, never to be moved by anything but so many calculated tons of leverage. What had she to do with these? Her remembrances of home and childhood were remembrances of the drying up of every spring and fountain in her young heart as it gushed out. The golden waters were not there. They were flowing for the fertilisation of the land where grapes are gathered from thorns and figs from thistles. She went with a heavy, hardened kind of sorrow upon her into the house and into her mother's room. Since the time of her leaving home, Sissy had lived with the rest of the family on equal terms. Sissy was at her mother's side, and Jane, her sister, now ten or twelve years old, was in the room. There was a great trouble before it could be made known to Mrs. Gradgrind that her eldest child was there. She reclined, propped up from mere habit on a couch, as nearly in her old usual attitude as anything so helpless could be kept in. She had positively refused to take to her bed, on the ground that if she did, she would never hear the last of it. 
her feeble voice sounded so far away in her bundle of shawls and the sound of another voice addressing her seemed to take such a long time in getting down to her ears that she might have been lying at the bottom of a well the poor lady was nearer truth than she had ever been which had much to do with it on being told that mrs bounderby was there she replied at cross purposes that she had never called him by that name since he married louisa that pending her choice of an unobjectionable name she had called him jay and that she could not at present depart from that regulation not being yet provided with a permanent substitute louisa had sat by her for some minutes and had spoken to her often before she arrived at a clear understanding who it was she then seemed to come to it all at once well my dear said mrs gradgrind i hope you're going on satisfactorily to yourself it was all your father's doing he set his heart upon it and he ought to know i want to hear of you mother not myself you want to hear of me my dear that's something new i'm sure when anybody wants to hear of me not at all well louisa very faint and giddy are you in pain dear mother i think there's a pain somewhere in the room said mrs gradgrind but i couldn't positively say that i have got it at this strange speech she lay silent for some time louisa holding her hand could feel no pulse but kissing it could see a slight thin thread of life in fluttering motion you very seldom see your sister said mrs gradgrind she grows like you i wish you would look at her sissy bring her here she was brought and stood with her hand in her sister's louisa had observed her with her arm round sissy's neck and she felt the difference of this approach do you see the likeness louisa yes mother i should think her like me but eh yes i always say so mrs gradgrind cried with unexpected quickness and that reminds me i want to speak to you my dear sissy my good girl leave us alone a minute louisa had relinquished the hand had thought that her sister's was a better and brighter face than hers had ever been had seen in it not without a rising feeling of resentment even in that place and at that time something of the gentleness of the other face in the room the sweet face with the trusting eyes made paler than watching and sympathy made it by the rich dark hair left alone with her mother louisa saw her lying with an awful lull upon her face like one who was floating away upon some great water all resistance over content to be carried down the stream she put the shadow of a hand to her lips again and recalled her you are going to speak to me mother eh yes to be sure my dear you know your father is almost always away now and therefore i must write to him about it about what mother don't be troubled about what you must remember my dear that whenever i've said anything on any subject i've never heard the last of it and consequently that i've long left off saying anything i can hear you mother but it was only by dint of bending down her ear and at the same time attentively watching the lips as they moved that she could link such faint and broken sounds into any chain of connection you learnt a great deal louisa and so did your brother ologies of all kinds from morning to night if there's any ology left of any description that has not been worn to rags in this house all i can say is i hope i shall never hear its name i can hear you mother 
when you have strength to go on this to keep her from floating away but there's something not an ology at all that your father has missed or forgotten louisa i don't know what it is i've often sat with sissy near me and thought about it i shall never get its name now but your father may he makes me restless i want to write to him to find out for god's sake what it is give me a pen even the power of restlessness was gone except from the poor head which could just turn from side to side she fancied however that her request had been complied with and that the pen she could not have held was in her hand it matters little what figures of wonderful no meaning she began to trace upon her wrappers the hand soon stopped in the midst of them the light that had always been feeble and dim behind the weak transparency went out and even mrs gradgrind emerged from the shadow in which man walketh and disquieteth himself in vain took upon her the dread solemnity of the sages and patriarchs chapter twenty six mrs sparsett's nerves being slow to recover their tone the worthy woman made a stay of some weeks in duration at mr bounderby's retreat where notwithstanding her anchorite turn of mind based upon her becoming consciousness of her altered station she resigned herself with noble fortitude to lodging as one may say in clover and feeding on the fat of the land during the whole term of this recess from the guardianship of the bank mrs sparsett was a pattern of consistency continuing to take such pity on mr bounderby to his face as is rarely taken on man and to call his portrait a noodle to its face with the greatest acrimony and contempt mr bounderby having got it into his explosive composition that mrs sparsett was a highly superior woman to perceive that he had that general cross upon him in his deserts for he had not yet settled what it was and further that louisa would have objected to her as a frequent visitor if it had comported with his greatness that she should object to anything he chose to do resolved not to lose sight of mrs sparsett easily so when her nerves were strung up to the pitch of again consuming sweetbreads in solitude he said to her at the dinner-table on the day before her departure i tell you what ma'am you shall come down here of a saturday while the fine weather lasts and stay till monday to which mrs sparsett returned in effect though not of the mahomedan persuasion to hear is to obey now mrs sparsett was not a poetical woman but she took an idea in the nature of an allegorical fancy into her head much watching of louisa and much consequent observation of her impenetrable demeanour which keenly whetted and sharpened mrs sparsett's edge must have given her as it were a lift in the way of inspiration she created in her mind a mighty staircase with a dark pit of shame and ruin at the bottom and down these stairs from day to day and hour to hour she saw louisa coming it became the business of mrs sparsett's life to look up at the staircase and to watch louisa coming down sometimes slowly sometimes quickly sometimes several steps at one bout sometimes stopping never turning back if she had once turned back it might have been the death of mrs sparsett in spleen and grief she had been descending steadily to the day and on the day when mr bounderby issued the weekly invitation recorded above mrs sparsett was in good spirits and inclined to be conversational and pray sir said she 
if i may venture to ask a question appertaining to any subject on which you show reserve which is indeed hardy in me for i well know you have a reason for everything you do have you received intelligence respecting the robbery why ma'am no not yet under the circumstances i didn't expect it yet rome wasn't built in a day ma'am very true sir said mrs sparsett shaking her head nor yet in a week ma'am no indeed sir returned mrs sparsett with an air of melancholy in a similar manner said bounderby i can wait you know if romulus and remus could wait josiah bounderby can wait they were better off in their youth than i was however they had a she-wolf for a nurse i only had a she-wolf for a grandmother she didn't give me any milk ma'am she gave bruises she was a regular old un at that oh mrs sparsett sighed and shuddered no ma'am continued bounderby i've not heard anything more about it it's in hand though and young tom who rather sticks to business at present something new for him he hadn't the schooling i had is helping my injunction is keep it quiet and let it seem to blow over do what you like under the rose but don't give a sign of what you're about or half a hundred of em will combine together and get this feller who is bolted out of reach for good keep it quiet and the thieves will grow in confidence little by little and we shall have em very sagacious indeed sir said mrs sparsett very interesting the old woman you mentioned sir the old woman i mentioned ma'am said bounderby cutting the matter short as it was nothing to boast about is not laid hold of but she may take her oath that she will be if that is any satisfaction to a villainous old mind in the meantime ma'am i am of the opinion if you ask me my opinion that the less she is talked about the better that same evening mrs sparsett in her chamber window resting from her packing operations looked towards her great staircase and saw louisa still descending she sat by mr harthouse in an alcove in the garden talking very low he stood leaning over her as they whispered together and his face almost touched her hair if not quite said mrs sparsett straining her hawk's eyes to the utmost mrs sparsett was too distant to hear a word of their discourse or even to know that they were speaking softly otherwise than from the expression of their figures but what they said was this you recollect the man mr harthouse oh perfectly his face and his manner and what he said perfectly and an infinitely dreary person he appeared to me to be lengthy and prosy in the extreme it was very knowing to hold forth in the humble virtue school of eloquence but i assure you i thought at the time my good fellow you are overdoing this it has been very difficult for me to think ill of that man my dear louisa as tom says which he never did say you know no good of the fellow no certainly nor of any other such person how can i she returned with more of her first manner on her than he had lately seen when i know nothing of them men or women my dear mrs bounderby then consent to receive the submissive representation of your devoted friend who knows something of several varieties of his excellent fellow-creatures for excellent they are i have no doubt in spite of such little foibles as always helping themselves to what they can get hold of 
this fellow talks well every fellow talks his professing morality only deserves a moment's consideration as being a very suspicious circumstance all sorts of humbugs profess morality from the house of commons to the house of correction except our people it really is that exception which makes our people quite reviving you saw and heard the case here was a common man pulled up extremely short by my esteemed friend mr bounderby who as we know is not possessed of that delicacy which would soften so tight a hand the common man was injured exasperated left the house grumbling met somebody who proposed to him to go in for some share in this bank business went in put something in his pocket which had nothing in it before and relieved his mind extremely really he would have been an uncommon instead of a common man if he had not availed himself of such an opportunity or he may have made it altogether if he had the cleverness equally probable i almost feel as though it must be bad in me returned louisa after sitting thoughtful a while to be so ready to agree with you and to be so lightened in my heart by what you say i only say what is reasonable nothing worse i've talked it over with my friend tom more than once of course i remain on terms of perfect confidence with tom and he is quite of my opinion and i am quite of his will you walk they strode away among the lanes beginning to be indistinct in the twilight she leaning on his arm and she little thought how she was going down 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 mrs sparsit's staircase night and day mrs sparsit kept it standing when louisa had arrived at the bottom and disappeared in the gulf it might fall in upon her if it would but until then there it was to be a building before mrs sparsit's eyes and there louisa always was upon it always gliding down 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 mrs sparsit saw james harthouse come and go she heard of him here and there she saw the changes of the face he had studied she too remarked to a nicety how and when it clouded how and when it cleared she kept her black eyes wide open with no touch of pity with no touch of compunction all absorbed in interest but in the interest of seeing her ever drawing with no hand to stay her nearer and nearer to the bottom of this new giant staircase with all her deference for mr bounderby as contradistinguished from his portrait mrs sparsit had not the smallest intention of interrupting the descent eager to see it accomplished and yet patient she waited for the last fall as for the ripeness and fullness of the harvest of her hopes hushed in expectancy she kept her wary gaze upon the stairs and seldom so much as darkly shook her right mitten with her fist in it at the figure coming down end of part fifteen